0: Dan Winter has been working in the field of consciousness studies for over 50 years. In the 1970s and 80s, he began to work with some of the pioneers in consciousness studies. And more recently, he's worked with some of those witnesses and contactees that claim to have been able to teleport and travel to space arcs such as Jean-Charles Moyen, empirically verifying that their brainwaves behave in ways that indicate that they have these special abilities such as teleportation. You're listening to ExoPolitics Today with Dr. Michael Sala. Your source for the uncensored truth regarding the human, extraterrestrial, global and political agenda. Click the like button
1: and subscribe to this channel. And now, here's Dr. Michael Sala.
0: Well, welcome, Dan, to ExoPolitics Today.
1: Oh, I'm so delighted to be here with the godfather of ET history. (laughs) Delighted.
0: Yes, well, you have quite a history. I mean, you've been around since the 1970s and 80s, working with some of the pioneers in the field of consciousness studies, some of the people that really put this field on the map. So how did you get interested in that? And, I mean, did it begin for you at university?
1: Yeah, well, I'm not as old as I look, or I was born very young, one of the two, (laughs) but uh, no. So I studied psychophysiology and biofeedback in graduate school, University of Detroit. Uh, Albert Axe was my mentor. So I was a polygraph builder, and physics of consciousness was in my mind even then. And then I did the Gurdjieff School Sacred Gymnastics. It's a colorful story. Then I was a systems analyst at IBM. At that time, actually, I knew Marcel Vogel. And that, that's actually how it kind of started because I became a teacher on the international Psychotronics circuit. And it was in that circuit that I came to know uh, Puharik and uh, Vogel quite well and uh, Benthoff indirectly. So, you know, I was kind of the, I guess they said the, the forest Gump of the physics of consciousness movement. We had uh, gatherings in Toronto and, and at Harvard and Bill Tiller was there and all the grandfathers. So yeah, it's a colorful story. <laughs>
0: Yeah, so why don't you tell us a little bit about that? I mean, uh, Andrea Poharic is famous or infamous, depending on your perspective. So, you know, what do you know of him? How much did you get to kind of meet with him? Did you get to see his lab nine up there in, Os- I think it's Osirich, New York?
1: Asining. Uh, um Well, at that time, I was working in Ben Bentos lab, actually, as many people know, the, wrote the book on the biomechanics of Kundalini, Stalking the Wild Pendulum. And he and I were very close and in some ways, uh, Andrew Puharik was kind of the, I won't say nemesis of, but there was a conflict actually. It's a bit of a colorful story. I believe they were in some ways on opposite sides of the Arab-Israeli war actually. And uh, so Bentoff claimed that uh, Puharik's spirit guides, that's right, that's Benthoff's, uh, And so I was actually doing the uh, polygraph building with Bentoff as I was a polygraph electrical engineer. And so we measured Kundalini with the capacitive accelerometer, which is basically the plates of a capacitor with measure micro motion. Now that, that leads me to the story of Puharik because um, few people know, but that one of the ways in which Puharik began to hear, quote unquote, the audience, and I became a bit clairaudient a little later on too, after much Kundalini, but the re- reason he began to hear had to do with the fact that he was uh, developing technologies for enabling deaf people to hear specifically using, uh, a it's called a it's so a little vibrator that when it's directly bone coupled, uh, and there's even bone conduction sp- speakers now on headphones that are very common. That's Andrea. That's right. Uh, and so, uh, there was a relationship to his lifetime study on bone conduction in the ears and the frequency signature, which would enable deaf people to hear, and the onset of the clairaudience, which was directly related to the day he said, oh, somebody named Tom is calling. <laughs> and later he found it was Atum, and later he found out that was basically Enki, and uh, started to tell him the story of the nine and, and bentoff was very skeptical initially of those communications really uh, and there there were problems I, you know I am fully convinced in fact I had around that time written my book on the life of anki goldenbean.info. slash anki so I was deep in the study of that history many years ago um, and until today when Elena Denon says he's back and I find it wonderful that the stories fit together for from uh, Puharik, and then from many years of my work with Anton Parks, and we do one of the websites on his history of Anki up to the present with uh, Elena Dan- Danan, and I feel strongly that the beauty is that those history stories fit together. But we were we were back at the story of Puharik and how then he met Phyllis Schlemmer, and how that actually became <laughs> the Star Wars Deep Space Nine. Uh, the the what. Uh, Puharik learned was that um that this group called the nine was um was as elena now says kind of the heroes of history and uh Puharik learned that for example the the plasma vortex which was associated with the nine and became the series deep space nine was actually itself intelligent and aware and these plasma entities that Poharic was communicating with were his lifetime, in some ways, a problem because the concept of astral hygiene was difficult for him. And I don't know where you want to go with that conversation, but I can tell you it's a...
0: Yeah, well, let's kind of like, um, you know, look a little bit at that because I think one of the things that really distinguished the work of uh, Andrea Poharic was that uh, he was a um, a... Well, I guess he was a medical doctor. Uh, he had he was able to develop certain protocols for being able to measure how uh, certain abilities, psychic abilities such as telepathy were enhanced through a Faraday cage. And so he would have people go inside of this Faraday cage and he would uh, see how well the Faraday cage would, kind of like ensure that psych, I mean, psychic hygiene, as you say, you know, because I think there's a lot of people today that are channeling entities that may be a, a kind of like electronic uh, interference from some lower astral entities, whereas Paharic, through using the Faraday cage, believed that he enhanced the psychic's abilities to be able to connect and channel these high-dimensional forces such as the mind. So, yeah, el- elaborate on that, That the Faraday cage, psychic hygiene, yeah. uh, how that works. Well, my experience at that time is I knew the people who were
1: studying Ingo Swann, who's very famous here, and he uh, famously lit a thermistor, lit a flame with his mind at a distance through a Faraday cage. And that, of course, set us onto the study, which became flameinmind.com, which is how we measured Jean-Charles Moyen's brainwaves. And specifically, we now know that the brainwave frequency signature, uh, you can see it at flameandmind.com, which is a golden ratio cascade from alpha to gamma, which identified when John Charles Moyen was able to to bilocate, um, produces something called a longitudinal wave uh, compressional, which at that time was often called scalar. And the key point here is that the pattern of longitudinal waves, sometimes called longitudinal interferometry, Will specifically go through a Faraday cage, which is exactly the way that Ingo Swan lit that flame with his mind at a distance, actually. It's a compression. So the interferometry of the compressional wave will go through a Faraday cage, but the transverse, which is most of our communication, which is most of our electrosmog, will not. So that's an introduction to a physics here, which is that when you're able to connect with this, it's called a longitudinal pattern. It's basically the Earth grid because it's fractal, actually. And as we know, um, when Karakov famously measured the military quality telepathy of Kozirev, the nodes on which they did it were those longitudinal nodes that where the magnetic lines cross and you get this compressional node. And that is where telepathy is enabled and specifically also where the Faraday cage enabled, enabled people to have telepathy with less electrosmog in them.
0: Okay. All right. So that does confirm that uh, the Faraday cage can ensure a certain degree of kind of psychic hygiene, just uh, to keep out interference, that lower level interference, um, kind of like a psychic smog, as you call it.
1: But we would want to caution here that the the goal actually is not to isolate yourself. The goal is to embed yourself. So, Obviously, if you don't have a problem with electrosmog and transverse waves, namely you happen to have the privilege of living in nature, then you can embed yourself in the Schumann harmonics, which are something called a phase conjugate pump wave. It's, it's a cascade that looks like a caduceus of frequencies, the Schumann cascade. And that's, for example, the way pyramids make a global wireless power grid, because it pump compresses, and it's also the way the crystal became warp power. It's all based on that wave shape that looks like a caduceus and that Schumann harmonic cascade is available to you mostly when you're not in metal buildings. And that is really
0: optimized DNA radio. That is the true physics of telepathy. So, uh, okay. So, so just to kind of like bring it down to a basic level for people to understand when psychics or others trying to kind of connect with higher dimensional forces are out in nature then the Schumann resonance that uh, is dominant in that natural environment, like enhances one's ability to be able to make that communication. Whereas if you're in a city or an urban environment, there's a lot of of electrical smog or psychic smog because of others, then a Faraday cage actually does help. It can in that sense.
1: Yes. Yes but in general what's called a temple it, it embeds you in a bath of the Schumann harmonics and that is dna radio perfected because it enables the compression cascade that pushes out the longitudinal and the longitudinal array is the dna radio basically
0: uh, okay maybe you should explain what is a, com- a compression cascade and 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 i and i sense maybe uh, this is where pyramids come in. I mean, uh, exactly. it, it, like the, the 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 geometry of a pyramid. Yeah. I mean, yeah. Uh, and I know that the the pyramids enhance psychic abilities and consciousness. So, you know, how does this compression wave work? Well, how does the pyramid produce a kind of compression wave, compression wave as, as you define or explain it, to enhance consciousness?
1: Well, it begins with the concept of non-destructive charge collapse, which is implosion of charge. And this is the title of my newest book, uh, Planck, Fire, Charge, Collapse, Cause of Gravity and Consciousness. And uh, basically, if you take something called the Planck length and time, which is the musical key signature of every wave in physics, and you simply multiply by golden ratio, you get a cascade. And that cascade predicts virtually exactly the Schumann harmonics, the only two frequencies of color that make photosynthesis, and the brainwave frequencies of bliss and all kinds of beautiful stuff. It's called negentropy. So that charge collapse perfected creates a wave shape that looks like a caduceus it's hermes the designer of the pyramids you know he would have probably used that and in physics today it's called phase conjugation that caduceus cascade wave and that is a pump wave and so pyramids because the diameter to height ratio is golden ratio and the pyramids are piezo piezo just means that a mechanical stricture will be converted to a voltage it's also key to the crystal that became the warp drive. (laughs) So this is a phase conjugate pump wave, whether it's on a pyramid or a warp drive crystal. And that cascade will push the compression waves to center implosively. And when charge waves converge towards center in what's called conjugation, visualize this caduceus, that compression efficiently converts the transverse up and down inertia waves, transverse EMF, which are not as coherent. And it converts the transverse electromagnetic. Transverse is the portion of the electromagnetic wave, which is oscillating perpendicular to the direction of travel, versus the longitudinal wave, formerly called scalar, which is a compressional wave, where the compression is moving parallel to the direction of propagation. And it is only that compressional or scalar or longitudinal component, which can implode at center. And when it does implode at center, It spits out a coherent longitudinal wave, which is directional. And that is what a gravity wave is made of, as Tom Bearden proved by equation in his book, Gravitable.
0: Okay. Uh, I thought maybe what we could do is is show a a, a principle of... uh, Victor Schauberger's Excellent. implosion, and and maybe you can explain how this works. I mean, just, just to explain the, the, the principle of, of implosive sure. force. Sure. Th- thank you implosion. for getting the
1: slides ready. Then I won't have to. It's all good. <laughs> no, so this is a model, for example, not just of Victor Schauberger. In Victor Schauberger's case, this water vortex was what's called piezoelectrically doped with rock powders like quartz, which are piezo. And that meant that the compression wave would make a voltage. And there was a voltage difference between the widest and the narrowest part, which is simply a difference in electrical pressure. And that's when Hitler wrote him a check for building a generator, actually, made power from gravity. But even more importantly, that difference of pressure, that convergence down towards center, that implosion, produces what's called a longitudinal wave at the bottom tip, which is directional, which is why these things floated. And of course, if you were doing it with an iron powder doped mercury called the Mano Nazi Bell, you get a whole lot more gravity. But it's all based on knowing how a vortex makes gravity. And it starts with knowing how why an object falls to the ground, because the vortex converts the charge inertia from transverse to longitudinal at the foci. And that directional emitted longitudinal EMF is the stuff of gravity waves. Absolutely.
0: Okay, maybe another way of illustrating this is to kind of look at the difference between implosion versus explosion, and and certainly uh, this this was very important during the Second World War. Yes. So uh, yeah, just explain how energy can be generated uh, either through implosive or explosive. Uh, technologies. It's even more
1: fun using your slides than mine. Thank you, Michael. <laughs> no, no, but it's, it's real. In fact, the first uh, nuclear device was called implosion because the phone on wave, which is longitudinal, had to be symmetric from the devices igniting around the periphery. And that actually made centripetal force, which was sufficient to generate critical mass. And notably, at those longitudinal cross points on the earth, the compression wave, critical mass is reduced measurably. So implosion versus explosion has a lot of lessons for nuclear scientists. For example, if you design an implosive capacitor, you can contain radioactivity, the primary purpose of the Ark of the Covenant. But so for the, for the metaphor here, implosion versus exp- explosion, to bring this to, as you would obviously wish, to the general audience, think of human bliss process. Human bliss process, like when Jean-Charles Moyen can bilocate. locate the the read
0: rate- no let, let's let's make it let's make it more simple let's make it more simple you know you're a guy you see a really attractive woman how does this implosive uh, process
1: work well actually that's how I started building polygraphs at the University of Detroit when I saw what Playboy magazine did to his GSR his finger resistance that's what started my career I'll have to say and I can tell you exactly that the resistance decreased and did not increase when he saw Playboy magazine. <laughs> and it's it's actually true that the the process of having some kind of bliss process compression always precedes radiance implosion precedes uh, explosion when it's sustainable it's to think about it you know a rose couldn't unpack unless it learned to pack perfectly first and that's exactly what happens in your aura it and this is not new information almost every physicist agrees that charge collapse is a cause of gravity Course, they don't have a clue of the cause of charge collapse until my new book. But almost every psychologist. Well, okay, <laughs> let, let's back up there. What is charge collapse? Charge collapse is charge implosion. Non destructive charge collapse was Einstein's name for the unified field solution, actually, and his name for the cause of gravity, which he didn't know why an object falls around. And he didn't figure it out because he didn't know what a fractal field which is, which is Planck times Golden ratio. And that is the solution. The, the fun part is, not only is that the cause of gravity, but it's the cause of consciousness directly. Most uh, you know, psychologists studying the physics of consciousness now agree that consciousness is caused by charge collapse. They all agree. And, but again, none of them know the cause of charge collapse.
0: I say consciousness, charge collapse, implosion. implosion. It's all the same. Uh, thing, same thing. There, are, there are symmetries between these. Um, well, it's, it's virtually they, identical. And that's the point. So, so when
1: charge collapses perfectly, Einstein's mystery was, well, where does the charge go out through center? It's got to go through somewhere. He didn't know that the longitudinal wave was the way
0: through the speed of light. And that's been measured, by the way. Okay. Well, let's, let's again try and kind of like bring this down to simple terms so people can understand. Okay. If, you know, you're sitting in a room and you're trying to meditate. You're trying to meditate in a on a single idea, or you're trying to meditate, you know, on silence. Okay, so you're trying to meditate on silence. So, you know, is this so? As you go into the silence of the moment, is is that is that an example of, of like uh, this uh, charge collapse where consciousness so. kind of focuses yeah. uh, in this implosive way, as opposed to our normal way of operating, is like. Our mind is going out here, thinking about, oh, you know, I've got that appointment tomorrow. Oh yeah, I got to get ready for dinner tonight. Oh yeah, I wonder what's going to be, what's going to be showing on the movies uh, tomorrow, and so forth. That your mind goes out in all of these places. That's this kind of explosive yeah. consciousness, which is very disruptive. Whereas, in terms of reaching higher dimensional uh, states of being, you, you've got to silence the mind and bring it down to that. Is, is that the charge collapse? Is that an example?
1: Oh, exa- well described, yes. Now, if you wanted to do the, the physics of that in more detail, that was Bentov's lifetime, actually, called the biophysics of Kundalini. So if you take how the low frequencies of heart, called heart rate variability, and the breath, they would then entrain the spine liquid pump. And the spine liquid pump, the sacrocranial harmonics, the, the tidal waves, they're called, Uh, they are actually fitting that equation perfectly. Planck times golden ratio. For example, the Mayer wave 0.1 hertz, uh, the most important frequency in the blood. So those low frequencies motorize the spine liquid pump, as you say, coming to the stillness where the charge collapse implosion becomes literally dense, feels like lightning in the spine liquid pump. And that measurably drives the ventricle liquid horns in the brain. And uh, Ben genius was, how to measure that which again is creating a still point so the still point here the still point here the still point here those are the implosion points of charge collapse and if you can ride the center of that lightning bolt without getting toasted <laughs> and that you see the thing is this level of information density it's sort of like when daniel brinkley died twice in lightning <laughs> if you can inhabit a lightning bolt the movie powder that's what that stillness is because The reason is because when you get to that compression point, it's called impedance matching. You hit the wave node of compression of longitudinal interferometry. And that still point, that's, that's DNA radio, the mind of God, heaven, all the fun names for that, the collective unconscious. And your ability to couple with that still point and connect with that radio depends on you being able to inhabit that still lightning bolt, which is your mind focusing on pure principle, clearly.
0: Okay when you talked about spine liquid pump, spinal yeah. liquid pump I mean you're talking about Kundalini rising I mean, absolutely
1: yes yes yeah. the, so just
0: that... to explain how that how that works I mean you know we have the kind of metaphysical ideas uh, you know, from India and elsewhere where you know the, the Kundalini kind of like ascends from the root chakra up through exactly. the other chakras up to, through to the third eye or then up through the crown if you're if you're an ascended master. So, yeah, how, do, how does that work? And, and, of course, you were talking about the caduceus and all of that. So, yes. yeah, just explain all of that.
1: So if you extend that caduceus, golden ratio times Planck, every single point from the breath low frequency to the spine liquid low frequencies to the brainwave frequencies to the Schumann harmonics, every point on that cascade of oscillators all fits golden ratio towards Planck, which is implosive charge collapse. Mechanically, again, this is Bentov's life, and I was in his lab many times, what happens is the spine liquid pump really sucks. <laughs> it does. It implodes. And the suction at the base draws up, in, in one sense, the sexual juices, the creative juices. And that, that means that out the crown come the, the, the serpent brain feeds the bird brain. The mouth of the amygdala is the mouth of that pump come the, the, the finest nutrients of human bliss and the sweet nectar drips at the base of the tongue and you f- the top of your head feels like a torch that won't go out <laughs> i mean that's a basic intro to kundalini but it's definitely a charge implosion and a phase conjugate pump wave for sure and we have many documentaries on the biophysics of kundalini goldenmeaninfo slash kundalini you can see the equations in the films we've made about that so i'm sort of the the incarnation of bentoff's work at this time
0: on the planet but <laughs> Okay so the, so there's there's the conducius and so exactly. yeah, Yes, so just ex, just explain yeah, that again. Yeah, thank you. Well, that, see that so that's
1: essentially the serpent feeding the eagle Quetzalcoatl returns who happens to be so thank you. But so the the reptilian brain right there at the mouth of the snake called amygdala to tower is spitting out these sweet nutrients because of the pumping action of the sacrocranial Mechanics. Remember, Upledger proved that if your spine liquid is pumping, it is clinically impossible to be depressed. And those harmonics fit the. And so that's that's dumping into the bird brain, whose wings are the ventricle horns. And that's what Bentoff actually measured, was that, and, and I did the equations for him actually, that the ringing heard in the ear by meditators, sometimes called sangreal, song in the blood, voices of ancestors, um, that the actual ringing you hear in your ear during bliss. Fit the equation, so he knew the low frequencies of the spine were literally driving the rotation of the ventricle liquid horns. In, in common language, it's called getting horny. The sexual juices have been pumped upward, and the, the ventricle horns will liquid will crystallize in a phonon coherence, and the wave is the technical the wave propagation velocity is equalized between the crystallizing liquid and the liquid liquefying crystal, the brain mass versus the ventricle liquids. And there's a very detailed physics of that, which basically means that you're making a, f- a cold flame in the center of your head that feels like your pineal is on fire. And if you can handle it, you know, it's very information dense, but it's also dangerous.
0: Okay. So th- thank you for clarifying that uh, the spinal uh, fluid pump action is this Kundalini rising uh, principle. And and of course that's very critical for being able to achieve these uh higher states of consciousness so um, I wanted to give a an example which I'm sure a lot of people are very intrigued by that that kind of re- relates to this and you know something I think Victor schalberger talked about which was uh you know how salmon um, are able to go upstream rivers to spawn so uh, you know how is this working because clearly there's some kind of um, Something that they're they're generating uh, through, is it through their consciousness, through their vibration, through their spinning? How how are salmon able to go up rivers?
1: Well, it's a beautiful question. Uh, One basic uh, recognition here is that a healthy river, which is literally a flow form, has still points. And those still points are like steps on a ladder. And fish will know about the steps on the ladder very well, which is what a longitudinal node is in EMF. As well, so that's one aspect. The other aspect is there's a kind of negative resistance possible in the hydrodynamics of the fish scale. Uh, so there's a, and also by the way, uh, the water has to be quasi superconductive. If you put water two degrees warmer just upstream, all the fish will be washed down. They won't make it up. So there's a, there's some very interesting physics
0: there. Okay, so essentially uh, you've got the water flow coming down river. So there's a pressure caused by the water but the fish are somehow able to identify these energetic healthy spots in the the water, in the river.
1: Yeah, the healthy river has a braiding action. And that braiding action is giving the water discipline. The book Sensitive Chaos, for example. That's why the river won't flood if it's braiding. And that was Schauberger's lifetime work, was to build those deflectors in the water, in the river. When you say
0: braiding, are you saying like the, the water kind of flowing in a braid action?
1: If you ever saw a flow form is... So the, the braiding action is a cascade of slip knots, just like braiding your lover's t- ponytail. Actually, it's a perfect metaphor. And that braiding action is what makes the river water strong. Yeah, there's a little braiding in there as well, but he used a uh, deflector ducts alternately spaced on the river to cause the river to braid. And that, and that in, in natural rivers, of course they do that naturally. Uh, and that's what a flow form is. And that, that braiding action then produces still points in the flow. Literally longitudinal nodes, compressional nodes. And that's a ladder for the fish to climb upriver. That's one aspect of this. And the other aspect is obviously the hydrodynamics of the of the fish scales, which are literally have a negative resistance.
0: Okay. Well, something you briefly mentioned, and I thought it'd be worth uh, just getting you to uh, elaborate a little bit on, was uh, the the Nazi bell experiments, where uh, the Nazis were were focusing on these principles of implosion and trying to harness that for uh, developing free energy, anti-gravity effects and so forth. And, of course, the Allies were working on the explosive Principle yeah, that exactly. was used for for the for nuclear weapons. So, yeah, tell tell us a little bit more about this uh, the Nazi bell, the implosive principle, and and how that could actually impact space time.
1: Well, you know that um, mercury vortex was used in many pyramids uh, to make it actually as a lens for the piezo function, uh, but then in the Vimana, uh, it was explicitly a counter rotating mercury vortex in the in the uh, Hanabu. Uh, was a study that began with the Vimana actually, but they were using counter-rotating cylinders and the mercury between them was uh, quote-unquote doped with a wetting agent that made a fine powder mercury soluble. And that's what made it red. And that also enabled the flux, the magnetic flux density in the mercury to operate parallel to the uh, hydraulic inertia of the super. uh uh, specific gravity of the mercury itself the combination then of the mechanical inertia of the vortex imploding plus the magnetic conjugation and i invented magnetic phase conjugation another long story with elizabeth rauscher but when those converging lines of mechanical hydraulic pressure implode and magnetic conjugation implode at the center of that vortex a very focused laser beam like Longitudinal compressional wave is spit out very directionally. And that's the way the Hanabu Nazi Bell flew.
0: Okay, all right. So, you know, with, with the, uh, the the flight of the Nazi Hanabu or, or flying sources in general, uh, the, the kind of implosive principles or the anti gravity principles that they operate on, um, if you're approaching a craft that operates with these principles, How dangerous can it be for you as an individual if, I don't know, if you don't have the right consciousness? Well,
1: you know, from the galactic perspective, this is a crude mechanism of propulsion, although the Nazis used it for decades. They stuck it in submarines, obviously, in Concord series and a base on Mars. You know, I think uh, Tony Rodriguez and Johan Fritz, they all got it right, (laughs) but... The advanced propulsion, this was called impulse power. The advanced propulsion is called warp drive, and it's far more elegant. And this impulse power, by contrast, uh, was uh, less sustainable, less controllable, and more dangerous. And there was, uh, in the time of the Nazis, a well-reported radioactive component, which was also very dangerous. So indeed, this is not the Cadillac, no. (laughs) Well,
0: um, I I know, like, um, uh, one... My army uh, insider JP, uh, he describes an incident uh, where he went uh, on a mission with uh, one other gentleman, a a Asian gentleman. I uh, think this was before he joined the military, and he described a craft. And this Asian gentleman got too close to the craft, and it just hurled him back. Yeah, you know, like it was like just this explosive force. He just a little, got a little bit too close to the craft, so. I mean, what is it that would cause that?
1: Well, that is more like what Searle is doing. It's very simple, actually. A high enough DC voltage on a concave metallic surface, and that's capacitive implosion. And that definitely produced thrust. The controversy was whether you could do that in the vacuum, but now we know you can. So simple high DC voltage on a curved metal surface, the concave portion of it will be capacitively implosive, and that will definitely produce thrust thrust. And again, that's not the Cadillac, but that's also very commonly used. And I'm sure that's what your friend was experiencing, virtually, a super high DC voltage producing implosive capacitance.
0: Well, I I asked this because uh, very recently, just a few days ago, uh, Tucker Carlson uh, did uh, an interview where he told a story about him being told by a uh, a brain specialist from Stanford Research Institute that 11 years ago, uh, there over 100 um, Air Force uh, personnel had suffered serious brain injuries or death because they got too close to UFOs. So I just wanted to kind of like get your take on what is it that's happening here? Is it because they're just getting too close and that there's this kind of like electrical discharge that just like uh, hurls them at a tremendous velocity? Or, or does it have something to do with, with having the right consciousness and DNA to be able to get close to these ex, um, uh, you know, very advanced technologies?
1: Yeah, well, the high voltage DC discharge from a metal curve is just the beginning the really efficient craft have a very dense longitudinal emf propulsion and a very compressed longitudinal node just to give you an idea in one of the famous templar uh, centers at Sintra, called the cork monastery there is a place where it was famous that the monks would go to that center which is very longitudinal and many of them would go nuts actually they would lose it and so the the compression of a strong longitudinal node, sometimes some people jokingly call it a mind meld with a vice-like grip with an Orion Queen mug, if the longitudinal compression is powerful enough, they even say in many cases humans will die in the presence of a Draco who has enough mind power. So to be able to inhabit really strong compression requires a great deal of inner strength.
0: Right, so how would that inner strength Uh, relate to consciousness and DNA? Well,
1: the more you have inhabited compression, which in this case, for example, bliss, uh, the more your inner, for example, DNA, braid, geometry, and glandular conductivity would have been compressed to the point of conductivity. For example, after many years of Kundalini, I can feel magnetic lines at a distance fairly well. And so I became, in a sense, superconductive to that. So I can handle a certain amount of, and I'm not saying I'm advanced in this regard, but I know what, how the phenomena works. So as you evolve, I don't know if you heard about the day Johann Fritz uh, faced the the Orion Queen, mag, you know, the White Queen. It, most people would die in, in that degree of charge density. And it takes a great deal of. Uh, strength and evolution to be able to handle that kind of density. But on the other hand, uh, you know, you can tell how powerful a person is by how centripetal their aura is. And a very centripetal aura eventually will become crushing. It's very powerful. Well,
0: you know, what, is, what is a centripetal aura? What is a powerful well, centripetal aura?
1: You know, when Bill Taylor famously measured that focused human attention causes electric fields to compress... In his book, Conscious Acts of Creation, he didn't have a clue why, but he did absolutely prove that focused human attention causes charge implosion. That has been proven. I'm the first one to explain how that works. So the non-destructive charge collapse tuned by Planck, for example, in brainwaves of bliss, uh, enables the aura to become centripetal. And the more broad spectral, what you call next dimension, that harmonic cascade, the more implosive that can get.
0: I mean, I don't think you answered the question. I mean, exactly <laughs> what is it that makes an aura powerful?
1: It's charge implosion. It is centripetal force. It is the whirlpool vortex imploding, literally. And it is non-destructive charge collapse. There's many
0: names for this, but it's very
1: specific. It's well, the ability- Let me
0: give you an example. I mean, it's something that people can understand, and maybe this will help you. I remember going uh, probably 20 years ago to an event involving this Indian guru, uh, Sri Chinmoy, and mm-hmm. uh, he was giving a lecture. And when I walked into that room, I could feel his aura from about 100 feet away. Excellent. He had such a powerful aura. Excellent. And that was because this this was an individual that was had something special that he had achieved through higher consciousness. You could feel that. It was a- Quality. It was. Uh, it was very gentle, very beautiful, very expansive, but powerful. You could feel that.
1: That's beautiful.
0: So a- beautiful again, w- what is it that can generate that feel? I mean, I-, I would say based on you know my knowledge, my limited knowledge. I'm not a. I certainly don't have your decades of experience in consciousness studies. But I would say that this is this is because this person had achieved this ability to be able to uh, generate. Uh, kundalini rising, opening up the pineal gland and being able to connect with higher consciousness so that that force going through him, I mean what you call it the 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 liquid pumping action, okay, that goes up that that generates this enormous auric field that people hundreds of feet away can can yeah, feel. That.
1: I was there when they were drinking muktananda's
0: bathwater too, <laughs> but i'm
1: I'm just going to make a guess that. The Sri Chimnoy, Chimnoy, um, that, you know, it wasn't a super powerful mind in itself. Uh, A big part of what he achieved was literally the skill to have compassion, would be my guess. Because the physics of compassion, where the heart turns inside out recursively and implodes, you know, heart coherences, Another of our studies here realheartcoherence.com so it's actually more of a study in compassion and empathy than it is a study in you know brainwave physics the the classic example when you watch a shaman steering a tornado and you ask well how did you do that he says oh i ate the hoochah." and you say what does that mean he says well i could ate ate the anger of the tornado which means i felt the pain and the tornadoes have pain too because where they bleed charge due to broken fractality defines pain. So if they're passing over a metal city, they are experiencing pain, definitely. So the the reason empathy made that shaman, the center of gravity of that tornado, was the embedding due to compassion, literally. And so there's a whole story of the physics of the heart turning inside out, and you know, yeah, beautiful story, beautiful.
0: Okay, good. Well, compassion, empathy, I mean, those yep. are things that I think anyone can understand that. Uh, a person who uh, is able to kind of like go deep into that compassion, empathy for others, that uh, they generate this enormous uh, auric field. And, and of course, I mean, Sri Chinmoy was able to do that. We can imagine that uh, historical figures like Jesus of Nazareth was able to do that, that he had that kind of um, compassion, empathy for others, and that's and that's what uh, you know got him into trouble with the with the with the uh, church at the time that got so jealous of him, you know, getting so many quality, uh, getting so many followers because people from hundreds of feet away or miles away could feel the yeah. aura coming from someone like yeah. Jesus, as opposed to the high priest, whoever he yeah. was, there in Jerusalem, who was like you know this this pedant spouting all of this biblical stuff and knowledge yeah. but you know no one could feel anything from his aura other than just you know and there's another the human ability there's another beautiful
1: aspect of this which has to do with the physics is helpful i think is that you can't fall in love with an aluminum building because the charge can't implode there nor can you remote view inside from inside a aluminum box so what they say is don't try to sustain bliss inside of a metal building because you're imploding poison. That has a deep meaning for here. You know, Luke Skywalker went down deep into nature and then he got the Jedi up, you know. So it it is charge implosion and there's some very important physics to make it more possible.
0: Okay. Well, I want to come back to this question about um, consciousness, DNA and and the ability to be able to interact with some of these uh, more advanced technologies. Now, uh, there's a book, and I'm sure you're familiar with it, by Radu Cinema Transylvanian Sunrise, where he talks about um, this uh, Romanian operative by the name of Caesar Brad, who goes into this uh, underground chamber in in the Bujeji Mountains under the, 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 the Romanian sphinx there that you see on the front cover. And uh, as, that as he uh, was part of a team going through this, they hit this frequency shield. And others, other military personnel and operatives couldn't get through this frequency shield. But Cesar Brad had the genetics, had the DNA to be able to just kind of walk through this without being hurled back or hurt or stopped in some way. So, you know, again, just how does that consciousness and DNA interact with advanced technologies?
1: Yeah, I knew Peter Moon a little bit and Preston Nichols quite a bit years ago in those circles. And I think those books are beautiful there and it's very useful. I mean, generally speaking, we know that uh, with recursive braid implosion in DNA, and we've measured that happens when you have heart coherence, for example. So the DNA mechanically braids and gets denser and then spits out this coherence in the longitudinal, which enables lucid dreaming called having a soul. And so that, creates longitudinal coherence, which is then uh, conductive to, conductive to what what I would call longitudinal interferometry. The longitudinal field has specific nodes. For example, if you wanted to contain heat at a distance for fusion, you cross these longitudinal waves at a distance and where they compress again, they exchange inertia with the transverse. And so you can contain heat at a distance is actually the only physics of action at a distance and that's what they call entanglement. Well,
0: you know, some of, some, of the, some of the people listening to this might say, well, that's just a lot of jargon. Well, no, just no. Just explain it, in simple terms no, how no. Well, a it's, person it's, it's like uh, Caesar Brad can, can walk through an electromagnetic shield that's preventing access to people who aren't, who aren't vibrationally attuned or ready to be able to go into, say, a hall of records.
1: That, that field effect he walked into is a, what's called a longitudinal array. It's a compression net. It's an array. And the presence of that array means waves at a dis- from a distance are crossing symmetrically to maintain the compression there. And in conventional physics, that axis to the axis at a distance is called entanglement, but entanglement perfected is what phase conjugation is. And that's how you make longitudinal coherence. So when you, it's called conjugate implode your DNA, you create a conductivity at another level which means literally, for example, after Danian Brinkley survived lightning, he was a superconductor and everybody he touched, he could feel their whole emotions of their life. I'm sure he would have made it through that node, actually.
0: Okay, maybe you've explained how it's done, but maybe what I'm trying to get at is why or what is it within people, within some people that allows them to walk through some kind of electromagnetic shield that's preventing access to a hall of records or something some advanced technologies which filters out those that aren't aren't ready yet but some are ready. So what is it about people that makes them you know, what is it that makes a Caesar Brad ready to walk through a shield, a vibrational shield, as opposed to say your normal army or intelligence operative who just gets blocked or gets blown back by the shield, or killed?
1: It's a very appropriate question, and I'm sure a simplistic answer isn't going to be enough, but there are some useful metaphors here. Oh, give us a
0: simplistic answer. We want that.
1: (laughs) But when uh, Jean-Charles Moyen by-located, to some extent, he was able to steer uh, in the array. Uh, When a lucid dreamer is at the stage of being able to uh, navigate in the lucid dreamer, for example, you look at your hand in the dream, and the do-loop, compresses and makes you longitudinally coherent that's the beginning of lucid dreaming. So compression is the ability to propagate in that array. And we, when we use it's called therify.net, it's plasma, and we replicably trigger lucid dreaming because we know what it is. So to be able to steer in a lucid dream is an excellent metaphor to look at your question, I would suggest that those who that develop that ability, another way to think about it is the beehive cannot swarm without royal blood present. And that is the navigator. That is the imploding DNA. So essentially, the reason lucid dreaming predicts who's going to take memory through death is that ability to steer, actually.
0: Okay, well, uh, I have difficulty understanding how a person's ability to lucidly dream might allow one to pass through a frequency shield that would uh, be a block to those that aren't ready yet to be able to access. So let me propose my hypothesis and you you respond. Just to say
1: that frequency shield was a longitudinal array. Specifically, what we have proven is what you propagate in when you lucid dream.
0: Okay. All right. Well, uh, let let me just propose uh, that someone like Caesar Brad, that he has information within his DNA that matches consciousness that is brought in through the soul incarnation process which together the two of them generate a certain resonant frequency that is recognized by that frequency shield and it says oh yep you're okay but this intel operative who's been working for the CIA or for the Freemasons for who knows how long the frequency shield says you get close to me buddy I'm gonna hit. you know I'm gonna throw you back a hundred feet Well, you know, those who could handle the Ark of the Covenant had a pretty much
1: identical (laughs) problem. And I do think that resistance to uh, high-density charge propagation, which is the kind of superconductivity that results from human bliss, is measurable and is directly related to whether you create heat, literally resistance to spin as you approach. So simply put, those who've had a lot of bliss process, you know, when uh, Freddie Silva says, lost art of rec- resurrection was initiation into having near death experiences after near death experiences that conductivity is present
0: okay well you didn't answer my question <laughs> i think you you to have well,
1: longitudinal coherence is reduced resistance that's the short summary
0: okay but if if there is something within a person's dna that matches with the consciousness that inhabits that body that that generates a resonant frequency field that is recognized by a frequency shield that is there to protect halls of records is it really just a matter of you know your your DNA, your consciousness is like a key that oh, yeah. is recognized by that shield. It just happens that we now know the exact
1: frequency signature that enables your DNA to implode in bliss, brainwave frequency signature and the heart frequency. It's a phase conjugate, pump wave, literally. And so we know exactly what that frequency signature is that makes you permissive, literally no heat when you encounter the flame that does not consume
0: Okay, well, let's uh, move on to a different topic, and I wanted to kind of get your take on this because I'm sure you're very familiar with the Emerald Tablets that were channeled by Doreal, where he talks about Toth and Jehuti and uh, the halls of Amenti. So, you know, what do you know about all of that?
1: I had a... Chapter in my book, Earthheart, was the modern day equivalent of the Emerald Tablets, according to my translator, Editor Vincent Bridges, at the time. But basically, the key is that Jehuti was really called Tehuti, a DWD, which later was mistranslated the Line of David. And that is the name of the royal line of Egypt. And that's who has returned with the nine. That's, I mean, that's the centerpiece of the story. And we joke that that's exactly the answer to every single one of Graham Hancock's confusion when he says, there was a hero in the past that taught civilization after the great flood. In every name he bumps up against, it's another name for Thoth to Huti. So this is a very important guy. And yes, he gets around. Quetzalcoatl, Viracocha. you know, this it's the same guy, Veracana. So he was here to teach us not just the physics of uh, life force, which is the caduceus, but he was here to teach us something much more specific, which is essentially what I would call the physics of how you have and make a soul. What enables you to lucid dream and take memory through death is that longitudinal coherence. The Egyptians called it the Ba from the Ka, Gurdjieff called it Kezjan, Tibetans call it rainbow light body. But it's a longitudinal coherence body. And if you don't make it, you don't make it. And that's, that's I, the deep lesson, I think, of Thoth in emerald tablets. And, it, you know, it was a green crystal. Oh dear, are you muted? Am I missing you?
0: I'm sorry. Yes, that was uh, me. Uh, So in the Emerald Tablets, it talks about this place called uh, uh, the Halls of Amenti. And it describes the Halls of Amenti as a place that Toth has gone to uh, after he had to kind of leave Egypt. and, And presumably that was because... There, there was a time for him to, to go into some kind of stasis or into hibernation and that he will eventually return. So in the Emerald Tablets, it talks about Tolf Jehuti being in this stasis, in this hibernation, in, this, in the halls of Amenti and will return. So I'm just wondering if, if that process of being in, in hibernation in any way relates to some of the information that has been coming out recently about these giants in stasis chambers
1: well that's a very interesting I, I mean i think elena denon got it right and i've done a lot of lectures with her that um the uh, return of the nine uh, thoth and enki at ganymede is uh, the return of what he calls adam cadmon which is the dna recipe to what, I, to what i would call make a soul implode and uh one more little clue here that might help is i think akhenaten his city uh or he made all the Egyptians mad because he kicked out their other gods, was named Amenti, actually. And uh, this was part of an array. Uh, it wasn't just about worshipping the sun god, uh, Enki Osiris at that time, whose bloodline was Akun Atun. Atun was basically Enki, and Amun was obviously the priest that was Enlil. And they were having their continuous conflict in Egypt as well. And... If Osiris Enki did not inhabit the sun, literally squirt his plasma into the heart of the sun, then the Nile would not flood on time. And there's some very interesting physics there, which is literally that uh, you know, the the plasma of bliss is what makes it rain, actually. So there's a whole if you're a pharaoh and you can't make the Nile flood on time, you're fired. And so after you know, X number of hundred years. Tutankhamun was used to make rain because the yearning of the ancestor had made him a rainmaker. <laughs> you know, so there's a whole lovely story about a menti here, and it's basically the center of a fractal array. And to inhabit a menti is to inhabit the, inhabit the center of the array. You could call it the underworld, but it's more than that.
0: Okay, well, you, you come up with some really interesting concepts here. You know, the uh, the the uh, uh, what is it? The, the your your expression. Uh, The plasma of bliss makes it rain?
1: Yeah, well, yeah, the physics of rainmaking. You know, the reason a child can put a hole in a cloud every time if he's happy and standing in mud (laughs) is because their focus creates a centripetal force which turns vapor into a droplet. It's called precipitation, but it's also been called cristos, (laughs) to crystallize. And so much of the story of Egypt was about the story of rainmaking, really. And we're doing rainmaking projects now in France here, so (laughs) it's on my mind. But... I did want to say that this, I think, could be... Well,
0: hang, hang on. I, I just wanted to kind of come to that because I think I think that's a, an important point because uh, I know I, I read uh, uh, a couple of decades ago now, I think, uh, uh, Greg Braden's book, The Isaiah Effect, where he, he talked about something very similar to what you were saying, that uh, when you are in a mode of celebration or maybe in a state of bliss, as you describe it, you can do things, you can make you can make it rain that this is in, and he would gave the example of the American Indians, uh, their rainmaking dances that in fact, that they were celebrating the fact that it was raining, even though it was dry and it was desert conditions, but they were celebrating. and, and depending on how well they could kind of get into that state of bliss, they would literally make it rain. So is is that what you're kind of talking about? The physics of bliss can make it rain? Yeah,
1: electrical engineers can talk about these things. You know, Rolling Thunder was tickling the underbelly of a black beetle when he made rain. We later learned that the wiring in that black beetle was very fractal. And when Grandfather Dan's Hopi corn called the wind, and I was there, (laughs) that DNA was very fractal. It would only germinate if you sang the right song. It was the family pet. So yes, they were calling the rain because basically the plasma elementals, they start out small, but eventually they become the size of continents. And if your family ancestor has been walking the same line for a hundred generations, then the magnetic line across your continent is a family pet, as is true in Australia, for example. So yes, these the ability to, to relate to the large plasma currents as they're part of your own body is part of the evolution of consciousness, clearly. And it's sad that our children today Don't talk to the elementals because then they can't call the rain as well. For example, and tornadoes are out of control because the elementals are angry.
0: (laughs) Okay, I want to come back to the uh, the the Emerald Tablets because there was uh, some very interesting passages in there that I thought was kind of like fascinating when uh, compared to uh, some of the information from one of my army insider JP who says that he went into this underground cavern in Florida and he saw a sleeping giant. And I, and I talked about this in just my uh, recent uh, webinar so people can can get it. It's going to come out if you if you didn't see it, but it's going to come out on Vimeo and on. Um, and it, I talk about JP's experience in going into this underground, into this underground uh, civilization where he sees this sleeping giant And uh, he also sees this uh, tree, this uh, tree that is sucking up water and the water is cascading out of the out of the branches. And the water has this kind of rejuvenative effect on those that drink it. So it's kind of like literally the tree of life. Mm -hmm. And and then later on, Elena Danan, uh, she got information from the Galactic Federation that sleeping giant was none other than Ningish Zidda. Or, or tolf. and and then we looked up. Well, who is Ningish Ningishzida is oh. the uh, the Anunnaki god of the good tree or toth. So so this to, to me, I, I kind of put all that together. And what the what the Emerald Tablets say, and it's what it all kind of leads to, is that well, is the hall of Amenti, or one of the halls of Amenti, under Florida, where this sleeping giant is being protected by this by this civilization of ant people uh, that are there protecting the giant and the tree of life.
1: Well, you know, people seem to agree that the word Anunnaki means ant friend, which was the Hopi name for their ancestors. And uh, the Aboriginal in Australia had an ancient tradition of the nine foot tall, red haired giants. And even in Zora Valley, New York, we had that legend. And uh, we know those those lineages were were giants in their day. And all of those most of those indigenous tribes the iroquois had a legend of Veracoca quetzalcoatl the tall uh, blonde-haired blue-eyed which is the giant literally which is literally thoth hermes which is probably literally who Veracoca and quetzalcoatl was and yes at the time as elena i think got right when enki basically had to leave because <laughs> little got too messy uh that his chief team here had to go into stasis. I think that's correct. And they would have returned from stasis at longitudinal nodes, definitely the array, the Amenti array, as it were. And uh, so there would make some logical sense. Actually, you could measure whether that cave was harmonic inclusive the way Karatkov measured where Kogi made phone calls to ancestors, because clearly that ability to preserve is directly related to what you call a medbed, which is a conjugate node, which is not just stabilizing but rejuvenating, literally time reversal.
0: Yeah, because I know the uh, the Emerald Tablets are very, very popular, and people like you know have generated a huge following because of their interpretations of the Emerald tablets. So I wanted to kind of like spend a little bit more time in precisely understanding that, given the information I've been getting, you've been getting uh, from people like Elena, JP, and and others. So. Uh, in the Halls of Amenti, it talks about uh, that uh, toth leaves the body in hibernation and then inhabits, in, incarnates in uh, human bodies, you know, disseminating the wisdom, uh, but then at the right time will go back to the Halls of Amenti and return. So that kind of suggests, as we uh, kind of like in the case of uh, Ningish in this location under Florida, that he his physical body or his avatar is there in stasis, but his consciousness has incarnated and is living somewhere on earth and doing things, but that now the awakening process is, is beginning. So this brings me to the idea, well, are the halls of Amenti just a reference, in fact, to these different locations where these uh, chief Anunnaki scientists, like I think there were 12 that... Uh, Prince Ea or Enki identified to Elena and said that twelve there were twelve Anunnaki scientists left behind. Uh, I think five were killed or captured uh, by the Deep State, but seven are left. Ningish uh, Ningishzida is under Florida. That uh, Aruna is under uh, Nippur, the city of Nippur in um, uh, in Iraq. So, so when we talk about the halls of Amenti, what we're talking about are are these. Underground locations in places like Florida, Florida, uh, Iraq. I think another place is under uh, Slovenia, where there's a, a King uh, King Matthias. The legend there of a of a giant King Matthias, and all of these are protected by civilizations, and there are stasis chambers. And so these giants are lying in stasis chambers. So essentially, when we're talking about the halls of Amenti, according to the Emerald Tablets, what we're talking about are these. Uh, These different locations around the planet where these chief Anunnaki scientists were in hibernation waiting for the right time to wake up and and then they would come forward and we are on the verge of that. Am I correct? Am I in the right direction, you think?
1: Well, I really like that story, and lots of it makes sense to me. In many parts of it, I feel a personal connection to both, by the way. But I think we could comment scientifically on what is meant by a stasis chamber in very competent electrical terms. For example, it has been speculated, you know, thousands, perhaps millions of people come to Sam Osmanigic's pyramid in Bosnia because they get rejuvenation. Well, it has been speculated that the chamber in the Great Pyramid was literally a stasis chamber. Namely, when you have your initiation experience, you need to be able to leave your body and, and it can't rot while you're gone. It's very simple. Well, what electric field prevents your body from rotting? You know, there's a, a thousands of year old Egyptian tradition of mummification. We now understand a lot more about the physics that the uh, s- s- uh, natron salt was a conjugator which capacitively imploded. And so the body, as the reason mummy powder was served in every pharmacy in Europe for 300 years because of its rhodium iridium gold powder content, they weren't eating the gold. No, their flesh became, because of the stasis regeneration of the capacitance of the mummy technology. So they could do that on a large scale. They could make stasis chambers where successful death and a leverage point from which to lucid dream was possible, that still point. So a massive longitudinal node would be my name for that, absolutely. And that's clearly what Thoth was up to. He would have a lot of experience because that's exactly what you have to do to make a pyramid work, is make a very high-pressure longitudinal node. So he'd he'd be the whiz at that. It makes total sense to me. I'm with you.
0: <laughs> okay, great. All right, well, thank, thank you for that uh, answer. Oh, and now I want to come finally to Jean-Charles Moyen. I mean, he has been... Uh, relaying his story about uh, teleporting to different locations, he's he's uh, uh, he said that he's teleported to uh, four different space arcs on the on the planet. Uh, one in Tibet, one in Antarctica, one in Japan, and one in Hawaii. Uh, but in two of those cases, uh, he's his teleportation experiences to Japan and teleportation experience to Antarctica, he says. And Elena Danan corroborates that she saw him; that she was teleported to the same location by Thorhan, and that her position and her she was teleported there to be a witness to him to kind of like corroborate those teleportation experiences. So you know that's one form of corroboration for Jean Charles. That's very important that he can teleport. That you have an eyewitness. Now you did uh, a scientific experiment with Jean Charles where you measured his brainwaves, when he would try to simulate the teleportation. So you can just explain and walk us through exactly what happened with that that experiment and your confirmation of Jean Charles' ability.
1: Yeah, you can see the results of our measurements with Jean Charles at flameinmind.com slash lucidbrain. And it was really quite simple. Jean Charles was something of a hero. He was very dedicated. And when he asked for a way to measure, we told him, well, you're going to have to buy the brainwave transmitter which is the flame in system. And he did, and he did his homework beautifully. And basically just at the moment when he felt he was about to teleport the brainwave frequency signature, we had a, it's, you always start with the alpha. It's the main peak around eight Hertz. And then there's a cascade alpha beta up to gamma. And that's a cascade. It's like a caduceus cascade. And in that cascade at that moment, he had very strong, a golden ratio series and an octave series. The octave series corresponds with telepathy, golden ratio with bliss. And you need both in order to be stable. We knew about this in the past because we've been teaching kids to see without their eyes. You can also see that at flameandmind.com. And the kids, the moment where they enter that bliss trance where they can always see without their eyes, uh, the brainwave signature is exactly the same. But Jean Charles brainwave signature was the same cascade, but much, much higher amplitude. So he was making a massive implosion, except we had to turn down the gain on the brainwave preamp. Anyway, remember, Jean-Charles says, just before I teleported, I see in one eye where I've been and the other eye where I'm going. And we know no electrically what happened. He literally turned inside out. And so that implosive compression drives him into the longitudinal ray, which is the physics of all stargates and portals in action at a distance. It's interesting that in his first travels, he almost always went to the beach. (laughs) That's a place that's longitudinal permissive. And when he went to those arcs, the exact same is true. He would not be able to teleport to the center of an aluminum building very successfully. No, he could probably get a bit scrambled eggs on the way. No, you got to choose these nodes very carefully, the coordinates for your teleportation. And the ability to steer when you do that requires a lot of evolution. But yes, we, we believe we understand the physics of this very well. And it again starts with the ability to navigate in a lucid dream. I remember him saying, well, maybe I better check if I have my passport. (laughs) So the turning inside out is instructive because at the center point, it's called scintillation in John Dee's study, which is the longitudinal coupling moment. That's where the implosive compression propels you down that array. That's the physics of teleportation for sure.
0: Okay. So the the study that you did uh, and the measurements that you you conducted confirm or corroborate that Jean-Charles was being able to access certain mental abilities that well, would enable him to do something remarkable like a teleportation experience. So so in, at the end of the day, would you say what you did would be empirical evidence supporting his claim of being able to teleport? We can say
1: for sure that he generated massive, unusual, huge brainwave coherence, for sure, which correlates to all these stories perfectly. And we think we understand really what's happening that you're imploding down into the node of a longitudinal array for sure. So yes, we believe we you know we have measured how it works. In fact, there's many, many clues of how you build uh, the longitudinal array to make a Stargate portal. And I did a lecture for Elena on that subject. In summary, our therify.net plasma working for rejuvenation in 25 countries, the real med bed. Uh, at higher amplitudes, that's what a Stargate portal is evidenced by the fact that we can replicably trigger lucid dreaming.
0: Okay, well, I wonder if uh, the idea of a star tetrahedron in any way kind of like um, illustrates what you've just said, is being able to create this kind of uh, geometric pattern of frequencies and thought forms, is, is that something that would enable you to kind of like Uh, Teleport. You know, in in terms of uh, you you talked about some kind of golden mean ratio in Jean Charles brainwaves that you were able to identify in generating those ratios. Was he in fact kind of like unconsciously or maybe consciously creating something like this to be able to teleport?
1: Yeah, you know, kids do this intuitively when they learn to remote view and we train them to see without their eyes. And suddenly they're seeing their ancestors and the parents freak out. But the, the, the star tetra is tetra cubic. And if you look at the center of our star mother kit, there's a tetra cube in there, a little hard to see, but there's a cube in there. So it starts with the cube, which is an octave cascade, but that is not implosive, but it's necessary for stability for the star tetra visualization is useful to start. However, That cube then actually tilts 32 degrees, the chin angle of the Sphinx, and embeds in what's called dodeca, which is a dodeca here and a dodeca here. And that generates golden ratio, and that is implosive. And when you generate both, the harmonic tensors of your brainwave become a stairway to heaven, literally implosive. And that's what he made. Octave cascade, which is star tetra cube, plus embedded inside dodeca, you know, Merkaba, Ezekiel's wheels. And the the connection between both cascades Remember, octave cascades identify telepathy, but they did not identify bliss. The golden ratio cascades identify bliss, but they're not stable without the cubic. So when you put both together, then you can have the ability to stabilize and literally navigate when you travel. That's why studying these ratios in brainwaves is so profound, because it's literally, you know, when the kids see without their eyes, which John, <laughs> John Charles can do that, but more, when they see without their eyes, they all tell the same story. Oh. I saw a little vortex pinhole appear inside my head. Remember their eyes are completely covered. They can't see. And then they say, I can see down that vortex like a tube and I can see through it like an eyeball. And then the vortex grows. What enables you to bring that plasma vortex to a point called an eyeball is those harmonic tensors, that brainwave frequency, the cube inside the dodeca. And that's what gives you the inner muscle to squeeze that plasma vortex. And so now we know not only why focused attention compresses charge, but we know exactly what you take with you for out-of-body, remote viewing, and when you die. We know what consciousness is. It's a plasmic vortex which can survive outside your body under the right conditions.
0: Well, well, I just want to give you this uh, opportunity, Dan, to direct people to where they need to go if they want to kind of like learn more about what you've been discussing uh, maybe buy your books or attend any kind of uh, webinars or anything like that you're doing. So where do people go? <laughs>
1: Thank you, Michael. Well, you know, our YouTube channel, Dan Winter Fractal Field is nearing 3 million views, 300 films as well. Uh, main website, fractalfield.com, flameandmind.com, fractalu.com and Therify.net is our plasma tech. The imploder.com is our water vortex tech from Schauburger. We have a lot going on, and uh, a lot of people are working with us. We we try to have the more advanced science to help people who are having spiritual experience understand them with serious science. So thank you.
0: Well, I want to thank you, Dan, for uh, sharing an incredible amount of information. I mean, I know for a lot of people it may, may have been difficult understanding it all, but I, I, I do know that uh, people speak very highly of Dan, and his experiences go back uh, five decades now, and he's uh, worked with some of the leading lights in these uh, fields. So definitely worth diving into his information and uh, learning more. So so thank you, Dan, for all you do and for your support of uh, getting to the truth about the extraordinary claims of people like Jean Charles and, and Elena Danand.
1: thank you you. this has been a great opportunity you know we didn't get to the slides of the physics of the star trek physics but three of the last films on our youtube channel are entitled entitled star trek physics so you can get to the slideshows which is really how these vortex work and warp and impulse power and all that stuff so the stories are there and we're happy to be part of dr sala's global audience thank you so much dr michael (laughs) you have been listening to Exopolitics today with dr michael sala Please remember to like, share, and subscribe to this channel. Join or start a conversation in the comments. Take the time to explore the vast library of best selling books, webinars, and podcasts by Dr. Sala. Visit exopoliticstoday.com.